0: Would help me to communicate, and Lord, I pray that you would anoint me with your Spirit's power, and Lord, give me ability that I don't have on my own, and I pray, Lord, that in my weakness, you would be my strength. I pray, God, that, that we would hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you got your Bible this morning, 2 Kings chapter 2, 2 Kings chapter 2. This morning we're looking at a passage that uh, many of you may have heard in, in, about in Sunday school growing up, maybe as an adult. But wherever the case, even if you've never heard about it before, it is the Lord's Word and it is a significant portion of Old Testament history and is filled with application for us today. I've entitled this message... Very simply, the passing of the baton. The passing of the baton, because what we see in 2 Kings chapter 2 is the passing of the baton of the ministry of Elijah to Elisha. From a ministry of Elijah to Elisha. If you remember, we saw Elisha come on the scene in First Kings 19, verse 19. And we go back to 1 Kings 19:19. 19, 19, We read, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And then we read in verse 21, And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. And there is where it began, and now we see literally the passing from one to the other in God's timetable of these prophets. So today we've got a lot of scenes, and we're going to continue to go through the narrative like this. And I hope that it helps you, because I know when I jump into the narrative sections, I want to get some handles of what in the world is happening here, what's going on. So let's jump in. Scene one today, Elijah and Elisha from Gilgal to Bethel. From Gilgal to Bethel. Now, as we look at the geography layout of what we're reading about in chapter 2, the three places that are, that are going to come up, four locations, Gilgal, Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan River. And, and, and so like as we look at a map, you can't really see that, but they're all centrally located in the middle of that map. And so you might have eyes to see Israel there. You see up in the top right Syria and there in the middle central area, you see Israel to the north of Judah in between Israel and Judah are all the locations that we're looking at today. so uh, if you haven't uh, received new contacts or glasses lately, this may not have been helpful other than to see the beautiful land of Israel. <laughs> all right, so let's keep going here. so what we're looking at is we jump into this and it's it's significant because What is happening, God has communicated to Elijah, to the sons of the prophets, and to Elisha, God's plan of translating Elijah away from this earth into his presence. And you see that throughout the chapter. And the very first verse alludes to that. It says in verse 1, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. That is communicating what's going to happen, but you're going to see in the chapter that they're aware of this before it happens. So we continue here. We're looking now at this whole thing. Elijah and Elisha are going to go from Gilgal to Bethel. And In these first three scenes, you're going to see one place to the other place to the other place, and each of these destinations reveals not only Elisha's longing to follow in obedience to God, but to receive the blessing, to receive the blessing from his mentor. He understood the call back in 1 Kings that we just looked at. And, and not only that, but you're going to see in each of these destinations, you're going to see almost as if Elijah is giving him the opportunity to pass the test to show not only service, but loyalty to the one who is mentoring him. You see this all throughout. So a lot of the language and a lot of the questioning that Elijah is going to give Elisha and the responses of Elisha to Elijah are going to be similar as we move through each of these destinations. So we, we go through here, and they're on their way from Gilgal, verse 2, and Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here. For the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. You're going to see that not only here in verse 2, but you're going to see it in verse 4 and in verse 6. The very same wording, each portion of each trip. In verse 3, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha. You're going to see in this narrative several mentions of the sons of the prophets. This was God's men that he had called. Elijah clearly had a ministry to these individuals, and they're located at many different schools. It's sort of like in modern times, we would look at these maybe like little bitty seminaries. And uh, I always laugh because I remember growing up, my dad was at a VBS and he looked out to the kids and he goes, does anybody know what a seminary is? And this big kid raised his hand and he goes, yeah, he goes, a place where they bury people. And my dad was like, close, close. (laughs) But unlike seminaries that are often dead and, and, and a place just for intellectual learning, This was lively activity because this was God's people speaking forth his word. They weren't just getting degrees, and they weren't just going to learning places. They were called by God, and they were used by God, and they were in different locations. And the first mentioning here is this school or these sons of the prophets who were in Bethel. They come out to Elisha, and look at verse 3. They say, hey do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? Now, isn't that interesting? They already know. And and, and it gives evidence of the fact that these truly were men that heard from God. They heard from God and they were aware. God had revealed it to them. And, And what you find here, he says, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. And We don't really know because it doesn't give a specific reason why Elisha answers keep quiet, not only this time, but two other times. We don't know for sure. Some have speculated that this reality was heavy on him because this was his beloved mentor. This is the one that in New Testament terms we would see as like the one who had discipled him, the one who had guided him, the one who had led him. We don't know for sure. But we continue into verse 4. And and as we move into verse 4, it's interesting because we go to our second scene. Elijah and Elisha, now not only from Gilgal to Bethel, but from Bethel to Jericho. And you're going to see something similar in verse 4. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives. And as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Again, he's demonstrating this incredible loyalty and service to Elijah, a man that he, dear, he dearly loved and, and, and respected. And, and so we go into verse 5, the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho. Now we've got another mentioning of the sons of the prophets and another Uh, geographical location. This group's in Jericho. They drew near to Elisha and said to him, same question that came previously. Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. We go to our third scene. So the narrative basically is demonstrating not only the service and the loyalty of Elisha to Elijah, but it is illustrating this, this path. God is moving them, and along the way is not only confirming what he's going to do through the sons of the prophets, but he's, he's demonstrating many things. And so we see scene three, Elijah and Elisha from Jericho to Jordan. From Jericho to Jordan, verse six, and Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them, went on. It's fascinating. You know, we saw that in verse 2. We see it in verse 4. Again, exact repeat of those two previous statements and responses. And it's fascinating because the loyalty is seen here. The service is seen here. And what's going to happen next is so important because look what happens Now, verse 7, 50 men of the sons of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Immediately, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're, you're at the Jordan River, and the Jordan River is allowing them to cross. And if you remember from Old Testament history, you're thinking about the time in Joshua. And you're thinking about God's instructions to Joshua. And you remember that story in Joshua 3.12. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And and Joshua goes on, and the book says in verse 14, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest, hearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark, were dipped in the brink of the water. And now the the note is given, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at a dam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabath, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho. So this is significant because... Not only do we think prior to Joshua, while it wasn't located at the Jordan River, what had happened? Moses, the leader of the people, had been at the Red Sea, and the Red Sea had parted. God was uniquely demonstrating his leaders. And what we're going to see happen in the narrative is like it's a reminder of the history of Israel, how God had not only raised up Moses as they departed Egypt, He had raised up Joshua as they came into the land. And now he had raised up Elijah. But what's going to happen is the very same miracle of what God did to part the Jordan River, allowing them to walk over, is going to be repeated by Elisha. You see this, this transference, this sense of God is faithfully demonstrating his power and his calling upon each of these men. And it's significant and fascinating as we see this. So a really important, significant event at the Jordan River that would be clearly on the mind of these people as they saw God perform through his servant. Scene four, Elisha's request The cross over the Jordan River, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What an interesting request. We're going to come back to this later, but it reveals so much of Elisha's understanding of himself and of his need for the power of God. What does he mean, though? And why does he use this terminology, the double portion? And what does he mean by double portion of your spirit? Those are some of the questions that we need to ask. In researching this, because I was really curious, I discovered that he requested the double portion would be the blessing of the firstborn. But typically, the blessing of the firstborn would be a material blessing. In this case, he uses that same terminology of the blessing of the firstborn, but he requests not a material blessing, but a spiritual one. A spiritual one. He was seeking God's hand upon his life. I, I was reading Phil Reichen here, and, and, and I agree with him. A double portion of his spirit. He says by spirit, he did not simply mean Elijah's disposition or temperament, but in a deeper sense, the Holy Spirit. What gave Elijah his spirit was the supernatural presence and gifting of the Holy Spirit and this is what Elisha craved. He was not interested merely in Elijah's staff or his parchments or his renown or even his cloak. When it came time to be written into Elijah's will, Reichen says, Elisha chose a spiritual inheritance. His deepest desire was to have the living power of the Holy Spirit in his life and ministry. We've been looking at this on Sunday night. You know, when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it, it would be a mistake to say that the Holy Spirit's ministry only began in the New Testament. Now, now hear me out. We know the fullest measure of the Spirit's ministry was a new covenant spiritual blessing that began at Pentecost. The fullest measure in, in a unique and different way. But we know from the scripture the Holy Spirit is full deity, eternal, active at creation, active throughout the Old Testament, coming upon prophets, coming upon kings. And I would believe wholeheartedly active in the regeneration of all Old Testament saints. So, so even though we can appreciate And we can celebrate the unique way the Holy Spirit's work comes in fullness at Pentecost in a way that fulfilled the blessings and the promises of the new covenant. We can also look back and when we see God's people in the Old Testament, kings and prophets, exercising their God-called mandate in their ministry, we can celebrate and glorify God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through these men and working in a powerful way. And so he asks for it; he longs for it. Scene five is one maybe that you might have remembered this one more than any other out of Second Kings chapter two, the famous story of Elijah taken into heaven. His literally his translation into heaven. We studied in Hebrews, remember we looked at the fact that only two people did not face the reality of death. As we go through our Old Testament, we read about Enoch and we read about Elijah. And here we read in verse 11, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Before I read that, I neglected to read verse 10. Let's go back. Okay. Important to read 10 before 11, because this is significant. He asked for a double portion. And then look what he says in verse 10. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. This is fascinating because what does he mean? Uh, You've asked a hard thing. It's as if, in in the simplest way that I understand it, it's as if he's saying, this is God's business, not mine. Only God can, can do what he's going to do. The mystery of the Holy Spirit working even as Jesus in a full fuller expression of what was to come was explaining to Nicodemus of how the spirit moves. But here, Elijah, he's telling Elisha, if this is God's intention, he's going to reveal it to you. And the way that he was going to reveal it to you, he says, you are going to have spiritual eyes and you're going to see me as I am being taken from you. And if you see what is taking place as I am being translated by God into heaven, if God so permits by his sovereign wisdom and power to allow you to see these things, he spiritually would reveal them to you. He's spiritually, graciously going to grant your request. An unbelievable thing here. So, so he, he humbly says, look, it's, it's not my business, that's God's. Uh, if God so grants that to be the case, and then he will make it clear to you, you're going to have eyes to see what you long to see. And, and what happens, he, he's translated into heaven, and what happens, we read verse 11, I'll read it again. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind, into heaven. I, I was reading a uh, commentary here. I like this. It says The divine army, last encan- encountered waging war on Ahab, has now come for Elijah. Elisha sees it. In biblical tradition, both chariotry and fire have strong associations with God's self disclosure. Both images come together in the most common natural form of divine appearing. In the Old Testament, the thunderstorm, the storm cloud representing the divine chariot or throne, and the fiery lightning bolts representing the divine weapons. That's what's happening here. God, in his power, in his glory, is revealing himself and taking up his servant. And immediately, verse 12, and Elisha saw it and he cried, My father! My father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And now we see this this, this passing the baton. Scene six, Elisha takes up Elijah's cloak. And, And read with me verse 13 down to verse 18. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over, just like verse 8. And now in verse 15, Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. They're recognizing what God is doing here. And as they recognize this, verse 16, And they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. You remember Obadiah? In 1 Kings 18, let's go back there. I want you to see this because this is a real thing. In 1 Kings 18, um, we read in verse 12, remember Obadiah, a servant in the house of Ahab, comes across Elijah in a divine encounter, and he gets nervous because of all that's taking place. In verse 12, and as soon as I've gone from you, The Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so, when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. He was confident that if God wanted to, he could take his servant and move him wherever he wanted to. And so, now these prophets, knowing at least partially what happened, they knew that Elijah was going to pass it on to Elisha that day. And they knew something was going unique was going to happen, but clearly not fully, because what do they want to do now? They want to go search for Elijah. And, and, and it's going to be, they're not going to find him, you know, good luck. Not going to find him. And, and so, verse 16, they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. He could be over there. He could be on a mountain. He could be in some valley. And what does Elisha say? He says, you shall not sin. And they keep going. Verse 17, but when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore 50 men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. He gave in to the request. They go out for three days. It's futile exercise because they're not going to find him on this earth. They're not even just gonna, not going to find him in the area of Israel. They're not going to find him anywhere. Verse 18, And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Scene 7, Elisha heals the waters. Now God begins to authenticate his ministry, and just as he had put the cloak into the water, repeated the same miracle that Elijah had performed under the power of God, now what happens? You see another miracle, and now he goes into Jericho, a place where there was condemnation for even all that had taken place there and, and the desire to rebuild and all kinds of things. But what does he do? Elisha goes there, and God uses him to restore the waters. All that had, all that had taken place with the following of other gods. All of the pagan buffoonery that was going on in the land had affected the people in such dramatic ways. The consequences of sin were rampant. And and now he goes there, and, and this is such a picture of grace. It's such a picture of restoration. It's a picture Uh, of salvation, of what God brings. In verse 19, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water's bad, the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Verse 21, Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. Just... Amazing, because I was reading uh, Tony Morita, and and I, I loved how he phrased this. The men of the city seek Yahweh's help. The men essentially say the city is pleasant, but something lethal in the water is causing humans and animals to miscarry. The city that was under a curse now receives a blessing from Yahweh. Elisha heals the water and assures them it will no longer cause death. Here we glimpse what miracles do they don't invade the natural order, but they restore it. And God restores this water. Scene 8, Elisha brings judgment on young men. This is a fascinating part of the story also. And there's debate as to what's happening here. Verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys. Now, what does that mean, some small boys? It could be young men, and, 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 it's, and one way to translate this is young men. It could also be translated steward or servant. So it's very possible the way we've always envisioned this scene is not actually what's happening. It could, it could be older people, stewards or servants. And what they're doing here is they're mocking of Elisha. And you remember what they're saying here, and we're going to read it. They're calling him Baldy. They're mocking him. They're making fun of him. And what takes place, verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel while he was going up on the way. Some small boys came out of the city, jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. We will try to refrain from calling anyone in the room bald head. But in all seriousness, I jest, but in all seriousness, what's taking place here is very severe. It's not just some kind of comment about their lack of hair. This is disdain for who God is. This is coming against God and coming against his people. I'm going to read something to you in a, in a moment, but, but, but notice there's an opposition between those who follow God and those who do not. It, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But if you seek to follow God, be prepared for opposition. Because people who do not love God and people that love the world will be opposed to what you do in your life as you seek to follow God. It's a reality. It's one we need to accept by faith and trust in the promises of God and count it a privilege to be one who's worthy to suffer for the name. But but we have to be aware of it. It happens to people all throughout the Scripture that love the Lord. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. And looking at this, and let me read you a passage that I did not think of at all when I studied this, but I came across it. Leviticus 26, verse 21 and 22 says this, If you act with hostility towards me, and are unwilling to obey me. I will multiply your plague seven times for your sins. I will send wild animals against you that will deprive you of your children, ravage your livestock, and reduce your numbers until your roads are deserted. It's interesting. It, I, I remember I was counseling somebody one time, and they began, they were mocking the word of God. And at one point they brought this story up, and they were mocking at the idea that there were she bears that attacked these young boys, as the, the translation I'm reading from states. It could be servants, stewards, younger men. And and I think here what we have to be reminded of is this. If if we are shocked at these bears attacking these young men who are mocking the holy God, we, we need a great education of the holiness of God. And I say that in a way of, of pleading with you to consider our reactions to judgment that takes place in the Old Testament reveals our theology of depravity. It reveals what we believe about who God is. It it reveals who we really believe and what we believe about the nature of man. If we're offended at this story, it helps us to see we misunderstand the nature of God, his perfect holiness. And we misunderstand the rebellion of man. We misunderstand the wickedness and the opposition of mankind. I was reading a, um, if I can find it, I want to read this to you real quick. Whitfield speaks about, George Whitfield, the famous preacher, he speaks about this. And he speaks about it in light of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And here's what he says. He says, the promise, hang in there with me, this is good. The promise, this promise has been fulfilled in the elect of God, considered collectively as well before as since the coming of our Lord in the flesh, for they may be called the seed of the woman. Marvel not that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus must suffer persecution. In this promise, there is eternal enmity put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent so that those that are born after the flesh Cannot but persecute those that are born after the Spirit. This enmity showed itself soon after this promise was revealed in Cain's bruising the heel of Abel. It continued in the church through all ages before Christ came into flesh. Whitfield and I would disagree as to when the church started, I'll tell you that. But anyway, As the history of the Bible in the 11th chapter of the Hebrews plainly show, it raged exceedingly after our Lord's ascension, witness the acts of the apostles and the history of the primitive Christians. It now rages and will continue to rage and show itself in a greater or less degree to the end of time. But let not this dismay us, for in all this the seed of the woman is more than conqueror, And bruises the serpent's head. I say that to you because so many times we look at the culture and we say, What is happening? Why are they in opposition to the truth? If we could step back and by God's grace understand this is the pattern of all of world history, those of the flesh have disdain for the seed of the woman who is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who follow him by grace through faith will face opposition from the world. And we see it here. These boys, they mock, they show disdain for the ways of God and God's men, and they face judgment. So how are we going to close this out? We're not going to just stop here. Six truths I want to leave you with today. Six truths we are reminded of. And I'm going to move quick. You may be thinking, oh, my goodness. There's six truths. That means six hours. No, I'm looking at the clock. Six truths we're reminded of. And you can put these in any order. Number one, I think when we look at this in 2022, as Christians in the new covenant era, We are reminded of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you may think, what do you mean? What do you mean? One thing that really hit me here was the fact that Elisha knew he needed a special anointing from God to do the work. He knew he couldn't do it on his own. And and think about it, believer in Christ, we have been given the indwelling of the Spirit, as Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, 12, and 13 speak of. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and he came into our lives. And and, and I love this because Elisha knew that he couldn't just mimic the things of Elijah. He needed a special touch from God. He needed an anointing from the Lord. And it hit me, I, I was thinking about how imitations of the real thing are just frauds, you know? They're just imitations. I, um, I was one day over the holidays, I'd, I've got a fire pit, and I always am wanting to get kindling for that fire pit, and my logs are too big, and I came across this kindling splitter. I thought, that's pretty cool. I can get a lot of small pieces of wood. So I ordered it right there. I was, like, fired up. I ordered it. I thought it was a good price. They're usually like, a, the good ones are like $100, and I was like, this one's awesome. Last night, um, Ellie goes, Dad, you got a package, and I looked at it, and I was like, what is this, and I I opened it up, and you you, you remember the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? <laughs> this was uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kindling Splitter. It was this... It's hilarious. I'm gonna bring it. I need to. It would fit down here. It was, It's about this high. It's like this tall. It's this thin. I'm like, what are we doing? You know, splitting kindling? It's not split, splitting logs. I got the biggest kick out of it. They got me for forty five dollars on that thing. It's awful. It's the cheapest imitation. As I was reading about Elisha longing for a double portion. I was thinking about, wouldn't it be a blessing if we longed to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God? If we longed not for just an imitation, not just for a cute smile in the store when we're frustrated at the kids, and not just a, a look of pleasure when we're miserable on the inside and filled with discontent, but what if we were reminded of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's given to all believers at the moment of salvation and we were reminded of the truth? Kyle read for you earlier, Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus. And you know what he says here? He, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And notice what Paul's alluding to here. He's saying, oh, friend, if you understood the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he controls you and fills you, Look at the realities to which God performs and works in you. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now notice the Spirit does what? Gives us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and the height and the depth and to know the I missed that last verse. And to know the love of Christ, he says, that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. As I was reading about Elisha, he could have asked anything he wanted. He had a keen awareness of a longing that God, God's power be seen in his life. I pray today as we read even of an Old Testament story, As we're in 2022, understanding the work of the cross and what Christ performed, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a fuller way, I pray today that it would give us a longing to walk under the power of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit pray that it would remind us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we would bow our hearts before God and pray that the Spirit of God would feel and control us in every area of our life. The second reminder, I pray we'd be reminded as we look at Elijah and Elisha of God's call for discipleship. You may be like, what do you mean? I understand that we see this truth worked out as we go through the New Testament. It becomes clear, doesn't it? We see examples of it in the Old Testament, but but think about it. Isn't it a gift that God put an Elijah in Elisha's life? And think about what, what a gift it was for Elijah to have Elisha in his life. This morning, I pray that as we consider this Wonderful story of this passing of the baton that we would remember Paul's words when he says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You've heard it asked before. It's a good question for all of us, though. Do you have someone pouring into you spiritually today? Think about it. Not a question of condemnation, but do you have someone pouring into you spiritually? Because by the grace of God, that's what we pray would happen here. That there would be discipleship, not just an opportunity to come and hear me preach and go home, but that, that we're all growing up into Christ. And that the, the older, and now I'm a part of that group, so I, I embrace it, The older seek to mentor and disciple the younger. But that the younger, even the older, look for wiser, godlier people to help mentor them. I need that in my life. And so if we could pray as we look at this story, even though it's in a different time of redemptive history, we would be reminded of the need of discipleship. Jesus in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations I pray we'd remember that. Now my slides are not going to work because it stopped working on here, but let me give you the third one. The third reminder that we'd be reminded of our future hope. Not only, number one, reminded of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, reminded of God's call for discipleship, but reminded of our future hope. We look at this story, and I think if you're like me, uh, growing up, you go, wow, what, what an amazing story. And we're caught away with like, wow, look at Enoch, look at Elijah. But th- the beauty of this is that there will be a day in this world where there will be Christians on this earth that will not see death when Christ comes for his church. I pray it's, all of us in this room would experience that. But you know what? We may not. It may not be in the timetable for God for us to experience that. But I want you to be reminded of something. Paul said something in 2 Timothy 4. He said, as he was about to die, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I love this. It's the reality of God's faithfulness and successful work at the cross and in the tomb raising from the dead that guarantees that all who are in Christ Jesus will be delivered and rescued and brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. The beauty of the promise to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. The beauty of the promise that all of those, whether cremated or whether bodies placed in the ground, that either ashes will be called back or bodies will be raised up, but they will experience glorified bodies in the resurrection in the future. That's hope. Today we remember this story, but don't just stop and be amazed at what God did then. Be reminded that just as Elijah experienced a heavenly reality, that all those in Christ Jesus Will as well. Fourth reminder. Fourth reminder. Be reminded of one greater than Elijah. Be reminded of one greater than Elijah. We look at this and I, I can't help but think about how Elijah is used in the New Testament. And quickly, we um, we read in the New Testament that. You remember Jesus comes into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And some people said what? They said some say John the Baptist. Others say what? Elijah. They knew the promise that Malachi gave of one that would come like Elijah. We learned in the New Testament that that was actually the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, according to Luke, was John the Baptist. And we also remember this this wonderful scene in Matthew 17, 3, where Elijah has another appearance on this earth. And he comes back and appears on the Mount of transfiguration along with Moses. And all of that, I'm reminded of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that, I'm reminded I was looking at a commentary that said there's going to be another prophet who will be anointed for service at the Jordan River, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. There's another prophet who would be mocked just like Elisha was and have his hair pulled out. There's a prophet who can pronounce blessing and roll back the curse by crushing that ancient serpent. This one will share the name of Joshua and Elisha. His name will be Jesus. One greater than Elijah, one greater than Elisha. But number five, we're reminded of the reality of God's continued work. Isn't it fun to think about the Jordan River? And as we get ready to close here, I want you to consider something. In every era where people would be tempted to worship the man or the servant, we see that as God takes them off the scene, we see God's faithful, continued work continue. We see God's faithfulness go on. We see not only it with Moses and Joshua, but we see it with Elijah and Elisha. We see it later with John the Baptist. But the reality is is that these individuals were simply empty vessels through which God's power was displayed. I'm encouraged by that because it's easy in our spiritual journeys to celebrate and to put so much on the person that influences us and has ministered to us and miss the reality that they're simply servants. And I pray that just as Elisha had to deal with the heartbreak of Elijah no longer being in his life. God was faithful. God is faithful even through today. The final reminder, a reminder of those who reject God. A reminder of those who reject God. We've seen it with Ahab. We've seen it with Ahaziah. We see it with these young men. And as we see it with these young men, I pray today that you would respond to God's mercy and grace that's given in Jesus Christ. Because as we look at this story of Elijah and Elisha, we're reminded of the fulfillment of all of it. We're reminded of this narrative and this story moving through the history of Israel, and we're reminded that it all comes together when Jesus Christ, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, fulfills all that we need and all that we're longing for. So today... I pray you'd chew on a lot of these realities. But I pray today, your response to Christ is not one of rejection. It's one of grace through faith, believing in his provision. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being with these precious people. And I thank you for the opportunity to be the pastor here. But I pray, oh God, that all of us would be changed by your word. I pray, Lord, that we would see these connections. We would see these parallels. We would see your grace. I pray, Lord, we would learn from those that have come before us. And I pray, oh God, rather than apathy or indifference, That our heart would be humbled, that by grace through faith we would follow you, trusting daily in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that it would be impossible to live the Christian life apart from his presence and enablement. I pray, O God, we wouldn't settle for cheap imitations. I pray, oh God, we wouldn't be comfortable just in the fleshly pursuits and the fleshly wisdom and fleshly strength we bring to the table. But I pray, oh Lord, we'd be reminded of our need and our response to you. I pray we'd humble ourselves before you and I pray, oh God, your spirit would fill us, control us, that when people are around us, they truly would see the fruit of your precious Holy Spirit. Lord, so many truths to meditate on. I pray, Lord, as we leave, we'd be humble before you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me.